have a seat. Good morning, everybody. I remember uh, one of the most powerful moments I've ever had with the Lord, just kind of a real spiritual, life-transforming moment. Uh, I'll never, I mean, I've had several, but one in particular, I was a freshman in college, and I was sitting on a Sunday morning at a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with three of my best friends, and I can't tell you what the preacher was talking about. I don't know what he was saying or what the topic was, but something happened in the middle of that service, in the middle of his sermon, that two things started to collide together in my heart and mind that I think changed me forever. It was just one of those powerful spiritual moments for me. One was a reality of my sin. Like, and I know that sounds discouraging in itself, and if that was the only thing that came into my mind, it probably would have been a little depressing and discouraging, but I just became very clearly aware of the condition of my life and the sin that was in my life. And at the time, even as I look back, I mean, I was mired in apathy, involved in things I should not have been involved in, sins that I just could not shake from my life. And just all that was kind of a moment of, of just kind of God revealing the true heart condition that I had. But the second thing that was colliding with that was how good God was, how gracious He was, and how much He loved me. And it was those two things that were colliding together in that moment. I remember I had, really, I can't remember ever, like, before that time, really having any tears or real passion or anything in terms of Jesus. But I just remember being overwhelmed at that moment. You Kind of tears come to your eyes. And I was thinking, I said, well, don't blink, don't blink, because then you'll have tears and your friends will see it. But I mean, it was just a moment where, oh, no, I'm just lost in this moment with God where He was revealing what my heart really was, and also his goodness and love, and it changed everything. Like, I left that experience with things that I had struggled with for years that were just, like, gone, like, instantly uh, in that moment. Now, that doesn't mean, like, everything's gone, but I mean, sins that were gone in my life. And I, I've come to appreciate that I think that is the key to real life transformation and change is when there is a collision in our hearts and minds of our sinfulness and God's grace. When those two things come, I mean, I mean really, I don't mean like abstractly, like just beginning first with our sinfulness. I think we abstractly, ethereally, in concept, we get that, yeah, we're sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Wouldn't you like to be a sinner too? I mean, we kind of have that thinking, and, but I mean, no, I mean a true revelation of the depths of our sinfulness. That moment when we realize that our actions towards God and others have been even when I've given myself the benefit of the doubt, when I really get to see it, it was probably born out of pride or selfishness, that moment that the decor of my being, I get to see the weight of the inclinations and thoughts and life choices and how distant they are from God's heart and will for me. That moment that the story that I keep telling myself, you know, that justifies all of my thoughts and justifies all of my actions and why I'm right and why this isn't a big deal or why this isn't a problem, when all of a sudden it's revealed to be a house of cards that comes tumbling down all around me, and what I've discovered in my life is I can't get there on my own. Like a true picture and revelation of my heart has never come to me based on just sitting down and trying to think through it, trying to meditate on my sinfulness. My experience has been it's always taken God to reveal to me the true condition of my heart. That I'm not capable of seeing it because I've got a lifetime of covering over it and justifying that it requires God to reveal to my heart through the Holy Spirit this is really what you're like, and this is really what's going on. And I've had moments where I've known I've had to discipline myself to enter into a, a, a period of fasting and prayer and meditation and silence and solitude so I could get in that posture where God can reveal, you know this is really in your heart, right? And I've had those moments where I go, oh, that really is who I am, and that really is how I think. And 
I thought it was Kelly's fault, but now that I see, I, I acted like this towards her because this is in my heart. And what I've discovered is just when I'm in my normal busy routine, doing my own thing day after day after day, I rarely hear from God about my heart condition. It's usually in those moments where you have to take some extended time and you have to ask Him. I need you to reveal to me, because I'm too blind and sinful to see it. I need you to reveal to me the condition of my heart. This is why David himself, when he writes in the Psalms, will even tell us. To, he has a prayer where he offers in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, where he says, and we just sang about it, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If it's in my heart, God, I'm asking you to show it to me and reveal it to me. And my experience is that happens only when you can get with God in kind of an extended period of time. And so I think in your own life, you will have a life-transforming moment when you catch a revelation of how truly wretched and sinful you are. And so my first task this morning is to convince you how what a wretched sinner you are. So welcome this morning to Livingstone's Church. Uh, how do you feel? Actually, not very good. <laughs> Listen, we all try to hide it and disguise it, and we come from a long lineage of defensive... Me- like, we go back... This goes back to the beginning of our story, right? When Adam and Eve sin, when God says, don't eat of this one tree, and then they do, what's the first thing they do with God? Do you remember? They hide. The very first thing that they do is, well, let's get out of here and let's hopefully God won't. Well, of course, God sees them and knows. And so as soon as the conversation, hey, you know, I said don't eat of this tree and this is exactly what you did. And all of a sudden, what happens next? The blame game. The justification. Eve goes, well, I mean, the serpent, he's the one that tricked me to do this. And Adam, he's even better. He goes, my wife, she made me do it. In fact, the wife that you gave me, I mean, it's almost God's fault that you gave her to me. And this is what happened. And See, we are full of our own self-justifications. We do it all the time. Well, if you would have grew up in the home that I grew up in and had my parents, you'd understand why I've ended up like I've ended up. Or, well, my ex-husband, and that's why. Or my disease, or my depression, or, well, my wife doesn't, so. Or my husband never pays attention to me. Or I've earned this, or I deserve it. We have many ways that we justify our own sin. We become experts at deceiving ourselves and others because, honestly, no one likes to feel that moment when it's revealed this is who you really are. And so we try to mask it because we don't want others to see it. And then the fear is they'll reject us or find us unlovable. We don't want or we won't be allowed to do this. And so we wear our masks hoping that no one truly finds out. And I believe it's only God that can truly unmask us, that we can see ourselves clearly. And when he does that, I want you to know it's a sign of his grace and mercy. Like, I know it might feel scary, and it might feel like, oh, who wants to see that? But I'm telling you, when God reveals your heart as it really is, it is a sign of his grace and his mercy. It means he's not left you alone. It means he's not done with you yet. It means he hasn't washed his hands of, with you and thought to himself, I'm just going to give them over to this, which it says in Romans chapter 1, where that means, oh, no, I'm still at work in your life. And like a loving father, I need you to see this because I have abundant life in store for you. And in order to get there, we need to deal with these things that are in your life. And so you need to know as we continue, you are a wreck of a sinner. And so am I. Now, if that's the only revelation, then that could lead us to despair, right? Um, worm am I? I mean, But no, no, it's not just that revelation. There's a second revelation, and it's that God is crazy in love with you. Yes, you are a miserable sinner, but at the same time, God is crazy. And listen, God knows all about your sinful condition, and he is crazy in love with you still. 
God knows your deepest secrets. He knows that thing that you've not breathed a word to anybody and you plan on going to the grave, not saying a word to... He knows all about it. He knows all about the depths of your thinking, the wicked inclinations that pulls in your life. Listen, I know you think you've hidden it, but he knows all about the affair. And he knows all about your fantasy. He knows all about the abortion. He knows all about the addiction that you've been trying to pretend that you don't have and hopefully no one else will see it. He knows about the story that you told the boss that we both know and God knows is not true. He knows that you stole it. He knows every fiber of your thoughts and beings. And listen to me, he is still crazy in love with you. He's merciful and kind. He desires you. He longs to forgive us and shower us with grace and mercy he loves you, knowing all about you with a crazy kind of love. And when I say that, I mean, I'm, sometimes I mean that literally, like, I don't get it. I don't understand why we do what we do and we are who we are, and yet God still burns with, like, I would have dropped your butts years ago, but God burns with such passion for us and love for us that he long. listen, he goes, he spares no expense, not even the life of his own son, to bring to us mercy and forgiveness. And that's why Paul will say in Romans 5, 8, oh yeah, listen, you want to see what God's love looks like, a demonstration of God's love? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think if these two realities, your sinfulness and God's grace, truly collide in your heart and mind, it will change everything. And what will come out of you will be two things in my mind, I mean, probably more, but at least these two things. One will just be you'll love Jesus more. Like you'll have, you'll have a greater passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's so important about that is, is you know that sinful heart condition that you have? In my life, I've, when I've had a greater passion for Jesus, it has remedied a thousand sins. Like, in fact, if I will grow in my love for Jesus, that's what takes care of some of the sins in my life. What my experience is, I've never gotten out of sin by concentrating on the sin. Like reading a book on it, going to a conference, really trying to work my... I mean, that's never worked for me. That might work for you, and I'm not downing that. I'm just saying what has rescued me from sin is when I've had a greater love for Jesus. That's what's saved me from so many sins in my life. And I think that will be one of the outflows if you'll love Jesus more. In fact, Jesus himself tells us in a story, it's in the Gospel of Luke. There's a story where Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And in the middle of the dinner, this woman walks in, and she's anointing Jesus with perfume, and she's crying all over him, and she's wiping the tears off of his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee who's hosting the dinner thinks to himself, are you serious? Does Jesus even know what kind of a woman this is? Because if he knew, he would not allow her to touch him like this. And this is just not only socially awkward, but it's just downright inappropriate. And Jesus knows what he's thinking. And so this is what it says in verse 40. Jesus says, hey, Simon, I, I have something to, to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. He tells him this story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. But neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he just went and forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? You hear the question? 500 debt, 50 debt, both are forgiven. Who's going to love him more? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt. To which Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And then he turned towards the woman. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? I, I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins are, have been forgiven, and her great love has shown. And then listen to what he says here. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. 
And see, that's been, see, when you have a revelation of the true condition of your heart and how much you have been forgiven, your capacity for love, not only for others, but for Jesus himself, will just boom exponentially. But here's the second thing. Not only will you have a greater passion for Jesus, but the second thing I think will be born out of that collision is just humility. A humility that now sees the graciousness of God and is no longer afraid to simply admit and repent of what is our true sinful condition. That's what humility is. It's, it's a, oh, this really is who I am, and I can be honest about that, and I can be forthcoming. It's a humility that conquers the pride that's in our life that's continually trying to hide our true selves from everyone around us, including God. It's, we could take off the mask of perfect husband. You could take off the mask of perfect wife or perfect parent or perfect employee or perfect Christian. It's probably the mask you walked in here this morning with. You don't need to have that. Listen to me. When you get a collision of those two things, God is so good and he's so loving. And yes, you're so sinful. But the humility allows us just to come out with it and admit it. And this is the important lesson we want to learn in the life of David. Because so far in the last four weeks, we've talked about David's life. And we've, we've looked at, man, this guy, is. it says in Acts that he is a man after God's own heart. And God trusts him to do everything he needs him to do. So we've looked at David's faithfulness that led him to action and great loyalty. We've taken a look at, 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 at the obedience that David had in his life. And we also took a look at the honor that David always honors others and honors, uh, honors God. But you need to know this too in the story of David. According to the scriptures, David too is a wreck of a sinner. And he blows it. Just like you and just like me, he has moments in his life where evil in his heart manifests with serious and devastating effect. I don't mind. David blows it so big, I find myself amazed at times that God will still say about him, he's a man after my heart, and I trust him to do what I need him to do. And I don't think the key here is not that David walks in perfection. I don't think God needs that from, from anyone. I think the key is in his imperfection how does he respond? What does David do when he blows it? What does he do when he screws up royalty? What does he do when God confronts him, shows him the truth of his heart condition? What does he do next? That's the key. And so I want us to hear a story in the, in the life of David where, I mean, he blows it big time, and then how he responds out of it and why that's important to us if we want to have hearts like David and like God's, and that God could trust us with anything. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You might be familiar with it, but I want to read it together. I'm going to start in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David, rather, just sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they did destroy the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, you'll see in verse 1 here, um, Where's David supposed to be? He's supposed to be out at war with his troops on the battlefield. It's the springtime. But where is David? He's in Jerusalem. And my own life experience is sin usually occurs when I have decided to be in a place that I'm not supposed to be in. Lingering a little longer with the coworker late into the night. Or maybe in that particular bar or that nightclub or in that text conversation that we both know is kind of, or on that Facebook page of the ex-boyfriend that your husband doesn't know anything about. Now, most of the time, we know we aren't supposed to be there. And here's how you know that you're not supposed to be there. Because that, uh, that nervousness, which is often translated as excitement, makes our heart and mind begin to go into overdrive to justify and excuse why we're there. 
that, that, it's that when you enter into that space where you know you're not supposed to be there, what will happen is there's a nervousness. Sometimes you'll translate it as excitement that will begin to justify and make excuses as to why you're there. You begin to say things like, well, I mean, nothing's really going to happen out of this. I, don't, I mean, I know what I'm doing. Or it's okay because it's just an innocent lunch. Or it's just a small comment on a status. But truthfully, the true condition of your heart, we know it's probably more of an attempt to see if there might be any interest or, interest or follow-up interaction or even just a thrill of being thought of. Or you say things like, well, I'll pay off this credit card debt before he even knows. I mean, I don't have to tell anybody. I'll just I'll take care of it. And we've all been there. Like, don't get all prideful on me now, right? We, we've all been there, right? We've all had those moments where we've entered into those spaces where we've had our heart and mind begin to justify why we're there and what it is that we're doing. And I'm telling you, when you feel your heart go into overdrive to justify it, you're probably in a space that you're not supposed to be in. But here's what happens because of verse 2. Ready? One evening, David got up from his bed and he started to walk around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the Bible tells us the woman was beautiful. So here's a temptation for David, right? Here's a gorgeous woman, and he sees her bathing. And so he sends someone off to find out about her. And here's what the man that went off came back and said to David. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the, here's the key phrase here, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, right there, that's when David was supposed to go, oh, she's married. Okay, all right, we're done, moving on. But he doesn't. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to go get her. So she came to him, and he slept with her. Now, in the Bible, it's a parenthetical note. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. I don't know if you get why the Bible tells us that. It's so that when the Maury Povich show goes out, that King David and Bathsheba are in, and you are not the father. I mean, that no, no, there's no doubt that if she's pregnant, it has to be David's. So then she goes back home, and then later it says in verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, guess what? I'm pregnant. Now here's that hot flash moment where you go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And so David's mind goes into overdrive. How am I going to fix this? I can't, oh my goodness, this is going to be scandalous for my administration and for so here's what happens. He comes up with a plan. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Joab's the commander of the army. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how war was going. Now, could you picture this conversation? He just slept with this man's wife and got her pregnant. How you doing? How's Joab? How's the war? Right? He's just having this conversation with, with Uriah. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, almost like a favor to him, go down to your house and wash your feet because the ladies like clean feet. So Uriah left the palace, and listen, it says, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Like, I want to know, what was that gift, right? A basket full of strawberries and champagne, a little bit of very white music. I think that's what was in the gift that he sent with Uriah to go home to who? Bathsheba. Because plan A is this. All right, we got Uriah back. He's going to go home going to sleep with his wife, his wife is going to be pregnant because she is pregnant, and they'll all think it's Uriah, and we'll all be all right, right? That's plan A. That's what David is thinking in this moment. Verse 9, though, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And David was told, Uriah didn't go home, so he asked Uriah, come on, dude, what's the matter? You've been out all this time in the military campaign. It's been difficult. Why don't you just go on home? And Uriah says back to the king, oh, no, listen, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. 
Now, you see the contrast, don't you, between David's behavior and Uriah's? The Hittite. The Hittite is more righteous at this moment than King David. I will not do such a thing. And David's like, really? Because I did, and it's not working out for me, so I need your help. <laughs> plan A didn't work, so we've got to go on to plan B. Plan B, verse 12, David said to him, you know what? You're probably tired and exhausted. Why don't you stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. Send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ain't. And he drank with him. He gave him wine and Jack Daniels and all that. And David made him drunk. See what plan B is? I'll get him drunk. Then he'll go home and sleep with him. He probably won't even remember it, but that's what will happen. We can all say that's what happened. I'll get to be clean in the end. We'll take care of it. But even in his drunken state, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his servants, master servants, and he did not go home. Well, this is a real problem for David. So he's got to come with plan C. And here's plan C. In the morning... In the end, David had to write a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and he sent, listen, he sends it with Uriah. How's that for a kicker? Listen to what, what Uriah has to hand over to Joab, the commander. Here's what the letter said, verse 15. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle. And he instructed the messenger. So Joab is sending a messenger back to King David, letting him know, hey, listen, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. So I like this how Joab Now here's the deal. Like, we lost some men, and when you tell the king this, he could get angry because that's what the king did. Like, how in the world could you have done this? Aren't you smart? So here's what it says. He may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall, and so he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? And he said, so if he asks you this and he's starting to get angry, then you just, just say this. Oh, by the way, Uriah the Hittite is dead, and then he'll calm down. Sure enough, the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Job had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Now, at this moment, usually David's starting to get, Are you serious? Starting to get the angers coming up. However, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David tells the messenger, Go back and say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. (laughs) Really? This sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. And say this to encourage Joab. And then verse 26, that's how it wraps up. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had been brought to his house. David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, here's the important part. Ready? Hear this? But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What thing? Oh, you know, adultery, deception, murder, stealing another man's wife, things like that. It's like, man, after God's own heart. When I read this story, I have two things that come to my mind pretty quickly. The first thing that usually hits my thoughts at the story is, what is he thinking? I mean, how stupid can he be to do this? This is absolutely crazy. I mean, he's the king. He could have anyone he wants. Just, dude, walk away. But then the second thought that comes to my mind right after that is, Yeah, dude, and because of what's in my heart, you put me in the right situations, in the right context, in the right circumstances, with all the right 
things around me coming together, and you're absolutely no better than King David. See, it's by the grace of God, go I. It's that moment when you recognize, you can look at other people's sins and go, oh, I'd never. But the truth is, well, you're not in their shoes, and if you were in their shoes, you'd probably find that your heart not, is not near as superior as you think it is. That in these circumstances and contexts and situations, you might be just as vulnerable. And I think it's healthy for us to know that going into it. Oh, no, I'm not above that. And so, like, I know there's sins I just don't struggle with, but I don't ever say I'm above them. I mean, you put me in different situations and circumstances, who knows what I'm capable of. You let me walk away from Jesus far enough, there's no telling what I may, might be capable of. I remember one time when I was in graduate school, one of the professors from the marriage and family counseling uh, program that they had gave a talk at our chapel, and he just said out loud, he says, I am not above an affair. And what he said it was just so shocking. He was like, whoa, dude. And he began to explain why, under the right situations, the circumstances, and context, he's not above this. And you need to know that or you'll be vulnerable in those situations, circumstances, and context. And so here you've got David in this moment of great evil has manifested in his heart. And it's cost, and there's been great consequences, cost people dearly, including the life of Uriah. And so for me, when I recognize by the grace of God, go I, I, I recognize what my prayer is, I need God to m- remove those things from my heart. But if he doesn't, I need him to put his hands over my heart to not let it out, to not let it manifest in my life and affect my family, my children, my ministry, those around me, people that I love. But the question for us is this, so how's David going to respond? Okay, he's blown it. Like, he's already blown it. He's messed up. How does he respond? So here's what happens next, Second Samuel chapter 12. Verse 1, it says, the Lord sent Nathan, who was a prophet at the time. So the prophet Nathan sends him to David, and when he came to him, he tells him this story. Here's the story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, and the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought, and he raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a, a daughter to him, right? Little ewe lamb. Now, some of you are like big-time pet people, and you totally connect with this. You're like, I totally get it, right? Little muffin, she eats from my bowl, and right? Now, I don't get this. This is a sin that I do not fall into, but I'm talking, I'm just kidding. You get the picture? Rich man, he's got tons of sheep, tons of animals. One poor dude, he's got a little ewe lamb that's like a daughter to him. Verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him, and instead... He took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. Boy, when David heard this, verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan looks right at David and says, You are that man. You're the king. You can have anything you want. Uriah is the poor man. This is, all he had was his Bathsheba. And you took her from him. And you killed him. You are that man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you. And your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if that would have been too little, I would have even given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. 
because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. What you did was in secret, but this will happen in broad daylight before all Israel. So how's David going to respond to that? God just revealed his heart. This is what's in your heart. This is what David says in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Simple, and it's brief, but it's profound. There's a lot of things in David's heart, honor, obedience, faithfulness, but also sin. And the question is, when that sin manifests in a way where you blow it, what else is in your heart? And for David, at least in this moment, what you see is humility and repentance. His heart has been revealed, and he responds with, I have sinned before the Lord. So Nathan tells him, the Lord's going to take away your sin. You're not going to die. David doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't play the victim card. He doesn't blame it on mommy issues. He doesn't say, the devil made me do it. He doesn't give, well, you know, my wives are neglecting my sexual needs, so I really needed to. He doesn't, he doesn't say any of those things. Just very simply, I have sinned against the Lord. So what does David do when he blows it and has sinned? He acts in humility and repentance. He confesses it. I've sinned. There's evil in David's heart, just like there is in your heart, like there is in my heart. But we also need to have in our heart the humility and repentance. So, you know, David was a poet and a musician. And so after this scene, he sits down and he writes a song. And in fact, it's in your Bible. It's Psalm 51. I mean, right after this incident, when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, he sits down and he pins this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it to you. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice is this, a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That, God, I know you don't despise. See, for David, this is, he says, this is what the key is, that humility. When, you're, when your heart is revealed to you for what it really is, and you know you've blown it, it's a broken spirit, a contrite heart that reveals humility and repentance. Now, I do need to say this because I think it's important in our story and also for our lives. You know, sin does have consequences. Our God is gracious. He's kind and he's forgiving. But that doesn't mean there's not consequences. He forgives you, but there are consequences to the affair. There's consequences to the crime. There's consequences to this habit or to this behavior. 
That's why we don't shrug our shoulders at sin and go, you know, God, he'll forgive us in the end. It's no big deal. No, there really are consequences to this. And usually that's when we turn to God in the midst of our consequences with that, oh, crap, God, I'm begging you. I need help and rescue now. And sometimes we see him do that. And I know I've prayed that prayer many times. But in our story, chapter 11 here is the turning point. 2 Samuel 11 is the turning point of David's life. Now, he will still go on. He'll be a great king. But within his family and his personal life, it's nothing but turmoil from here on out. The baby that was conceived is going to die. His own children will enter into conflict with one another. I mean, including things like rape and murder. And there's problems that escalate in large part because of David's own passivity as a father. David will be overthrown by his son, Absalom, who will sleep with many of David's wives in front of everybody. And then later his son will be killed. David does get restored to the throne, but infighting will break out among his military leaders. And then we know sin has consequence. But in spite of that, I want you to see in David's heart, in spite of the sin and evil that's there, there's also humility and repentance to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Because of this, God is able to see in David and say, He's a man after my own heart. And I trust him to do everything I need him to do. And David will not have God's covenanted love taken away from him. And here's what I need you to know this morning. Because you belong to Jesus, you will never have God's covenanted love taken away from you. That in spite of the things that are in your heart, in spite of the sin that's in your life, and really it's there, you are a wretched, miserable sinner, and so am I. But God is a gracious, compassionate, forgiving, and merciful God. Crazy in love with you. And because of that, he will not take away his covenanted love because of Jesus. Because of the king who came from the line of David. Because of what he did on this cross. He did this so that we will know that, no, no, God will be with us. And he will not remove his love from us. Because of that, we don't have to wear masks. We don't have to let pride come in and try to pretend we're something other than what we really are. It's, it's okay for us to say in humility and repentance, no, this is the truth of who I am and what I've done and the situation. And so we get to allow that moment of knowing we're a sinner and God's love collide together to give us a greater passion for the Son of God to call us simply to greater humility and repentance. I'm going to ask the band just to come on back up here. We're, we'll close with this. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and I think this is interesting. And uh, Emily began this uh, in our worship time. Paul says, or do you show contempt for the riches of the kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that's intended to lead us to repentance? And I think this is important because it's about tone. Like, I think you can get people to change by guilt, and I think you can get people to change by fear, but it won't last long. I mean, it'll be short-lived because people can't live in guilt and fear forever. They'll eventually just get exhausted and quit. And that's why for God, he's not trying to woo us, to romance us, to win us over through guilt or through smiting us. But Paul says, no, it's through his kindness. His kindness is what has the real power to bring about real repentance. And when we catch a glimpse of his compassion and kindness, that is the thing that will lead to real life transformation. The thing that will lead to real life change. It's that collision. Your sin and his love coming together. And then it allows us to take off the mask and in humility and repentance to say, that is who I am. And it allows us to take our heart and to hand it to God and say, 
it's safe with you because you're so loving. And so that's what we want to do. We want to give God our hearts, everything in it, like the totality, everything that's in there, to say, God, you can reveal to us what's really in our heart, not to lead us into despair, but only to highlight your grace and your love. So let's stand together. Let's give God our hearts.